Hello, and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series. Hello, and welcome to Codish. I'm developer advocate Chris Castle, and today we're talking with Claire Lee, from Silicon Valley Bank about a few of the most pressing issues facing the tech industry that were just recently discussed at Recode's Code Conference. Thanks for joining us, Claire. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, Claire Lee. I'm the head of the early stage startup evangelism group at Silicon Valley Bank. So there are a lot of things that we wanted to, to chat about today, but can you start with kind of just a uh, yeah, what, what is Silicon Valley Bank for those who are unaware, and um, what do you do as the head of, of early stage there? So Silicon Valley Bank is really at the intersection of the innovation economy. We have been around for 35 years helping innovators um, at every stage of the life cycle with their technology and life sciences startup, find access to capital, talent, and customers. So we're really looking at servicing innovators and investors primarily with really interesting groups across the board from life sciences, energy resource innovation, which is the artist formerly known as cleantech, mm. of course, software, enterprise software being a big piece of that, fintech, hardware, and then the private equity and venture capital world as well. But my favorite of all the groups would probably be the wine division. Ah. Uh. That sounds great. It does. It is. <laughs> so you travel to Burgundy and fun places like that frequently to yeah, I mean the, talk the, to the wine in, innovators? The interesting thing is we, we tend to follow the people and we really place bets early on people. So what's really interesting to me about this story is how this evolved. And it was essentially when in the early days the founders and investors had exits and did well. And then this trend began where they would go and buy a winery or um, you know, buy some vines and at least try and make a very different product to the one they potentially had before. Mm-hmm. And so Silicon Valley Bank founders at that point were very much you know, pioneering the, the category of venture debt and they, they kept you know, supporting these individuals through the next chapter of their life cycle. So it's fascinating. We work with a lot of um, very cool boutique wineries you know, in Washington State, in Oregon, and then in California, of course, Napa, Sonoma, and we've been branching out and evolving that business as well, like every other group. So it's it's really fascinating story. Yeah, that's cool. Is it your standard wineries, like like someone who just wants to create a really nice wine, or is there some like tech startup or innovative like bent to it where it's um, like they're doing something different or they're using IoT or something like that with their vines? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think again, being at the intersection of it, you see a lot of cross-pollinization where you've got people who appreciate technology and the uses of that in any industry. Every single industry is being disrupted at a rate and a pace far faster than, than previous years, previous decades. And so we bank, you know, uh, boutique wineries, as I said, premium wine. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, for anyone who knows is not the, the stuff that we get at Trader Joe's yeah. normally. Right. But really interesting, very entrepreneurial people. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we saw lately was a robotics company actually started in um, New Zealand, essentially a university technology transfer and research project that became a commercial viable entity backed by a large Japanese corporation that's just entering the United States. 
Okay. And they will be selling their robotics equipment and their intelligent sensors to growers yeah. and farmers. And huh. so I just loved making that introduction because, of course, we want him to be able to go and sell his fantastic product to these wineries in Napa, Sonoma and beyond. Yeah, that's cool. I got to meet with a Heroku customer called Creator, and they've created a, a robot that makes hamburgers. And so they have a fast casual kind of restaurant in San Francisco where they have this machine that creates a burger for you. Um, and they have their software running on Heroku in the cloud that interacts with it for kind of point of sale and, and health of the machine. Uh, so it's cool to see all these like the merging of like hardware and software, um, whereas like Heroku was really only for software at, at one point, and now yeah. everything cloud is like connecting more and more with hardware. Yeah, I mean we're seeing the same in you know healthcare. I mean healthcare yeah. plus software really is a whole category in its own right. Digital right. health as well. Yeah, um, and cool. as someone said to me earlier, you know, cancer is huge. I mean, cancer is the biggest market actually for yeah. the biotech and life sciences um, sector startups in the U.S. At least so. Yeah. Yeah, let's hope that uh, there's more intelligent solutions coming out like that. Yeah, that's cool. It's cool to see. So what have you been up to lately? We chatted about uh, you were recently at uh, Recode's Code Conference and picked up all sorts of great nuggets and interesting information for uh, developers and tech founders and whatnot. Um, what were some of the, like, the, the most interesting things you heard about or, or saw there? Yeah, I mean, I guess... I, I mean, this was my first time mm -hmm. at Code, and it was great to be, I just found it an incredibly diverse group of people, pretty small, intimate group as mm -hmm. well. So it gave us plenty of opportunity to really connect with old friends and, and colleagues and also meet new people who would otherwise probably not collide with each other right, mm -hmm. uh, on a daily basis. So yeah, Code was fascinating. There was probably three big takeaways for me and, you know, Anyone who wants to read the more intelligent, um, you know, engineering kind of brain uh, synopsis is recommended to read Stephen Sanofsky's Learning by Shipping Medium mm -hmm. post on the context. But it's like really interesting to see, I think that the passion and energy in the room was directed towards kind of three main things. One was looking at, you know, when we think of media platforms, like the big platform technology companies. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and I'm including, you know, Instagram, obviously, as well with uh, Facebook is, you know, they came under a lot of pressure to be more transparent. So that, that was kind of number one takeaway for me was transparency and trust in this digital age are really important. The second thing was around looking at really the role of technology in various forms. So one was when we think about AI, what is the what are the ethics and the ethical applications related to AI? And particularly when we're looking at automating things like content moderation or you know basically policing the web to really address the issues around you know the, the hostile environments or hate speech or uh, you know misinformation, disinformation, and quote unquote fake news. So that was, I think, a really interesting piece of conversation for me because I'm not usually exposed to something that mm -hmm. it really is looking at how media has evolved so much in this digital age, right? Where we're having a very different conversation today about these platforms than we did maybe in 2004 yeah. when I think, you know, right. that was when Facebook um, emerged. And 
That plus when you look at, say, the very public questions that are out there right now around, you know, Twitter, obviously, is a platform, mm-hmm. yep. which Cara Swisher actually referred to as a cesspool. <laughs> in a kind, yeah. you know, that's her term of endearment. You right. know, I absolutely, I happen to adore Twitter and that's where I tend to consume a lot of my news. But yeah. one great, you know, comment was maybe that contributes to even greater bias and myopia because we tend to, you know, follow people that are close to us in at least opinion, mm-hmm. potentially. And so I think that's a very interesting challenge for us is to understand ethics and bias as it relates to the way we can manage and moderate content in in this digital age. So I think what we're looking at is a generation that's really searching for tools that can at least put some, you know, beautiful constraints around the bad actors, let's say, right? So limiting the amplification of something that's actually considered quote unquote bad, you know, where does it break the tools and the rules versus you know, what kind of things are we going to put in place that obviously allow positive content or at least verified, validated content to be amplified to a greater degree and therefore monetized? Yeah. And so any investors that know what it's like to invest in consumer startups understands that what a powerful platform Instagram has become right. for these consumer startups. So that was a fascinating discussion. So that's that's probably second point. And then thirdly and finally, I think really looking at the greater role of technology as a whole, right? It was quite fascinating, I think, that I really liked the way Cara, who's, of course, you know, from Wall Street Journal, I think, initially, and then obviously set up Recode, Decode, and now it's evolved, and then they've merged with Vox Media. Mm -hmm. So you had Cara, you had Ezra Klein from Vox, uh, you know, Peter Kafka, other amazing journalists. And, And these are people I don't hesitate to call journalists. Yeah. Right. As opposed to. They're not just bloggers or just. Yeah. The general philosophy, I think, that they brought was really fascinating. And that was the third kind of big takeaway for me was technology. So, I mean, it's everywhere. Right. You know, software is eating, you know, fill in the blank. Right. Right. So like at this time, I think, you know, having a lot of these big, big problems we're seeing around energy and climate change, you know, clean energy and the need for greater solutions and broader solutions. When you think about migration and immigration Mm -hmm. and social mobility, there was a lot of discussion um, on that, specifically looking at the role of technology around the US border, really looking at the role of technology in helping essentially break down barriers and create much better access for everybody yeah. to you know the same kind of things, i.e. not being hunted down and treated differently just because you may have a certain ethnicity. Yeah. So there was a lot of discussion, I think, around the role of the big tech platforms and also the role of you know anyone who is in this industry when it comes to much bigger questions around financial inclusion, inclusion and representation across the board, mm-hmm. access, and then really the privacy and you know data questions were really dominant. Yeah. So I found that amazingly interesting. Did you get the sense, was the tone, or could you get a sense of whether like, are we at the, and, and these people that were there, are we at the kind of realization phase of this right now? Or were there people actually giving kind of like 
here's how to fix some of these problems or people that seem to be beyond just like, okay, I recognize there's a problem. I want to actually fix it now. Were there people throwing out solutions or, or saying, here's what we need to do as a community? Yeah, I mean, you know, to quote Stephen in his summation blog after code, I think he nailed it when he said, you know, there's a consistent chorus reminding us all that context matters. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the title of his blog. But, you know, what I came away with really is knowing, okay, we're in the phase where we're acknowledging there's a problem. Yeah. There was a lot of discussion around how that problem manifests, Mm -hmm. you know, in everyday life. And as I said, a lot of consistent thought leadership coming from you know representatives very senior representatives from these companies however the talk about transparency and the need for trust was so pervasive that of course we're we're all reminded of that as we board the planes home but it's (laughs) i think what became evident for us was probably the trust has been eroded Mm -hmm. and once the trust you know to quote someone on stage once the trust is lost it's very very hard to win it back yeah And so I think what these platforms are facing is, and I'm not sure the word backlash is, you know, justified, although we did dive into that code as well. It was a really interesting discussion. But where do you draw the line? And I think what people have seen is that our requirement now is for greater accountability. And I think Tim Cook even, you know, called people out on that in a commencement speech very recently where he said, you know, you can't go and create chaos and acknowledge that you you are creating chaos without taking responsibility and accountability yep. for fixing the things that are broken. Right. And I think that's a very important learning because, you know, coming away going, oh, yeah, we need to be more transparent and we must be aware of the data and privacy implications and, and the need to retain trust. But you can only have trust if it's, you know, bi-directional. And yeah, so right. these platform companies have a lot of work to do. Yeah. That phrase was probably mentioned uh, if you were to do a word map from code. I'm pretty sure that's high up there. The phrase work of, to do. they have a lot of work to do. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, so like all these companies, all these platforms are, you know, still corporations, public corporations. Most of them are with um, their like primary goal as maximizing shareholder value. How do we how do we make sure that part of their like Tim Cook said like part of their goal is taking care of the messes that they create um, helps to increase shareholder value or how do we make that a priority in the the bylaws of the corporation <laughs> do we need to make things like this in the bylaws of the corporation it seems it seems like there's so many questions that kind of like break a lot of the me being like I did economics in college and like it seems like there are a lot of things here that kind of break the maybe now incorrect rules of how capitalism works? I think it's a new normal. Yeah. Breaking the rules is um, innovation. Yeah. I think if a lot of creators, innovators, engineers tried to color within the lines, that we probably wouldn't see a lot of the remarkable solutions that we do see every day. And we do. I mean, the great thing about our world is that we're exposed to these incredibly talented, passionate entrepreneurs most of whom are really trying to solve a problem. And that's where this idea comes from, the genesis of the company, and that's what they're seeking to do something with. And really, you know, monetization or commercialization is usually not the reason. Right. You know, so... Yeah. Well, I think any rational yeah. human probably would not start 
a company themselves or uh, start a tech company. Right? I like, think you have to be a little bit crazy <laughs> right. to start a you have to be company. Excited and, and, and yeah, you have, have to some be irrational. extraordinarily resilient yeah. and tenacious to continue to run a company because yeah. it's hard. Right. Really, really hard. So I mean, I had a really interesting kind of mini epiphany when I was listening to Matt Levitich, who's the CEO of Harley Davidson and I really liked his fireside chat with Kara Swisher because it showed the value of integrity. And when he talked about you know the values of the company and the culture and the way that they hold every employee accountable and the way they take ideas, you know, I think it's called entrepreneurship, right? Mm-hmm. Which is really allowing people, the employees in the company, to be as important a constituency as the customers. Yeah. And so that's how their products have evolved and you know keep being relevant today. But he actually demoed and brought on stage the first all-electric vehicle, which is what he calls for first-time riders, or AKA children, huh. you know, to get them used to riding bikes. Yeah. And so I love the way they're evolving, but they're doing it in a way where they're staying true to their core values. Mm. Okay. Which, um, I mean, of course, it's a huge piece of their competitive advantage. Yeah. On the flip side, had he reacted to this big conversation around tariffs, which are really impacting their business to a massive degree, yeah. like to the tune of you know tens of millions of dollars, right, on their yeah. bottom line, right? They're not wavering. They're aware of it. They've had to pivot. They've had to make some really interesting, you know, executive decisions but they're still not straying from their core values. And yeah. I think that definitely resonated when I listened to Matt. I mean, I don't own a Harley Davidson today, but it certainly <laughs> made the brand in my mind stand for something. I think increasingly this generation of millennials and Gen X or uh, Gen Z rather are going to be even more selective about what brands they spend their money on yeah. because sourcing, ethical sourcing and sustainability matters more to this generation than any other generation before that. Right. And it's going to make a huge difference to brands that start and you know survive and thrive right. versus those that are just unsustainable and therefore go out of business for a number of reasons. Yeah. And it seems to be the same way also for brands that the millennial generation will work for, right? Like I'm not, maybe not quite the millennial, but I would both want to purchase from and work for companies that share the values that I have and want to spread or want to make more known in the world, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, honestly, in our, you know, the Silicon Valley Bank startup outlook report, access to capital, at least for the constituents we're working with, which are, you know, 50 to 60% of the VC-backed tech and life sciences startups globally, you know, those startups are really not battling as much for sources of capital these days because there's an abundance of capital, although it is highly concentrated still. Yeah. They are actually more engaged in a battle for talent, a war on talent. And so access to talent and talent acquisition is really, you know, it's number one, I think, priority for a lot of the CEOs that we spoke to in our startup outlook report, 91%. So that was their biggest priority. And it's an obstacle to growth. Think of it. If I was to write you a check tomorrow and say, you know what, I love your idea, Chris. Here's a check for $5 million. I mean, that's a seed round, by the way, in Silicon Valley. <laughs> $5 million, okay? Yeah. And then you go out next week to try and find people to spend that $5 million on. Mm-hmm. And how easy do you think it's going to be to find engineers in Silicon Valley? 
whether it's enterprise software, consumer, or fintech, yeah, or clean tech, right. or biotech. You know, I think everyone now shares that kind of pain point. So going to the other end of the spectrum, David Solomon from Goldman Sachs was on stage as well at, at Code, and he said that seventy four percent of Goldman Sachs employees are millennials or Gen Z, and sixty percent of GS is 30 years old or younger. Yeah, that's shocking. I mean, that is fascinating. They're hiring 2,500 grads every year, but get this. I mean, we think of them as a bank, right? Like Silicon Valley Bank, we're a bank. Yeah. They have 11,000 engineers. So they're competing for engineering and tech talent, just like the platform companies that we just spoke about. Yeah. So I, I just find that an amazing kind of nuance is that graduates today, like and in the next, X decades, right, are going to have a range of choices when they come out of college. And let's face it, college probably won't look like it does today in 20 years' time either. Well, this has been great. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this episode. But keep your eye out for the second part of our conversation with Claire in a future episode. We're going to discuss supporting women founders and generally lowering the barrier to all underrepresented groups to becoming startup founders. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Kodish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.